This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. In five. Check for sound. Four. It's showtime. Three. Let's two, go. One. You're listening to the Pro Audio Suite, a program for audio and voiceover professionals. This week, as part of NAB in Las Vegas, George and Robert are coming to us live from Adrenaline Studios. You can check out Adrenaline at AdrenalineStudiosLV.com. Just ask for Matt. Now let's get on with the show. First of all, of course, you're there for uh, NAB. Uh, in Vegas, how's the show going so far? Because you're two days in. I'm tired, but I'm not too sure if that's because I was hanging out all night and drinking beer. But uh, it's been a good show. Yeah, you know, plenty of traffic at our booth. Um, we're just showing what we've got, you know, the ISDN products and Source Connect and all of our usual stuff and trying to go visit other booths as much as I can a little bit. And haven't seen too much yet. Um, it's hard to when you're an event when you're a vendor. Yeah. It's really hard to get yeah. away and go. Although see the other best stuff. way to get people to come to your booth is to leave your booth. Oh, it is. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <back>. Like. <laughs> yeah, I, I did get to see a nice demo today of um, Source uh, Nexus, the newest incarnation, version 1.2, and it's a much more flexible methodology for routing audio in and out of. Um, from different softwares. So you can bring audio in and out discreetly into Skype or uh, Source Connect Now or any of the other competing products that don't have proper um, multi-channel audio drivers and route them in and out of Pro Tools or any other DAW. It's pretty pretty well done. Nicely done, Robert <laughs> Thank and you. Rebecca team. Yeah. So with that, because we've talked about this before, so you can I can use... Source Connect standard, and now I can connect with someone on Source Connect now. Is that correct? Not, not quite. That's that's coming out in Source Connect 4.0. Is that sort of bringing it all together with now and Source Connect standard and Pro all interconnecting along with other endpoints. Um, but what Nexus 1.2 is is the traditional problem was that Nexus was a virtual audio driver and it let you connect in, say, Skype or Chrome. And even though Nexus was a 24-channel driver, an app like Skype or Chrome, it didn't matter to that because those apps could only see channels one and two. So that, because there was only one driver for Source Nexus, you could only use Skype or Chrome. So what we've done is with the 1.2 version, um, it's gotten a lot more flexible. So not only can you use any audio driver that shows up in the entire computer, so even hardware drivers, but with the other um, app that we just released called Nexus Control, you can create as many drivers as you want. So you can create one for Skype, create one for Chrome, create one for FaceTime, et cetera, et cetera, and then um, therefore have a separate Nexus plugin in your workstation, be it Audition or Pro Tools, all separately pulling in these different audio applications. Um, so you can sort of have a, a desk where maybe you've got Source Connect, Source Connect Now, Skype, all on separate faders in your audio workstation, and you can just, oh, you want to do a phone patch? Boom, pop the fader up. You want to do Source Connect? Pop that fader up. And you don't have to start rerouting things because you can have it all mapped out ahead of time in a sort of cohesive template, all without cables because it's all virtual drivers. How much pressure does that put on the CPU usage for your machine, Robert? Does it put a lot of load on? It doesn't seem to be that bad. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. CPUs are plenty powerful, so that's never really been an issue for Nexus, actually. Yeah, cool. Uh, yeah. Wow. How's VISDN going? What's the reception been like at NAB? 
Very well, very well. So a lot of traffic, um, especially from post houses and some radio stations as well. Um, you know, visited some other booths. I was even actually talking to the guys over at Glen Sound, and I was amazed that they said that they're still shipping, you know, in a given month, maybe uh, four or five sometimes ISDN, like new ISDN codecs. I was like, really? You're still selling new ones? And they said, oh, yeah. So they were asking um, actually about, you know, UK-based uh, endpoints, and I said, if the market grows, sure, we'll put out some pops in the UK, but right now, VISDN is just US-based uh, phone numbers and endpoints. So they were very curious. That was one of those sort of vendor-to-vendor things. Um, and then, uh, you know, NPR and all the sort of big radio stations were trying to um, get them over to the booth, and so we've talked to a few of them, and it's interesting to see where the radio market's going, if it's sailed or not sailed, but there's still enough legacy use that even if they're not switching over all 20 of their ISDN lines, or maybe they've dropped them all, but they still have a need for at least one or two because, as we know, the ISDN traffic has not gone away completely. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering how radio, well, radio in its, it, it, as it is in its current form is going to survive, let alone uh, using ISDN. But, um, uh, well, radio is becoming TV, right? I mean, now, now radio is really a podcast and, you, and they have cameras in the rooms. As you're doing the show, sometimes yeah, even yeah, more that's than what's that. Happening. Even more than that, I um I was reading the other day on uh, one of the Australian ad online magazines, Ad News or something like that, that um Southern Cross Stereo, who if not the biggest uh, radio network in Australia, one of the biggest, have actually opened up their own television studios and are now creating TV commercials for their clients as well as the radio commercials. So right. if that tells yeah, you anything, well. there's a pretty good idea of the way it's going. And radio's converging with social media. So, you know, these shows are going on at the same time. There's Twitter feeds and people are reading things off of Twitter and speaking them back in through the air. And so there's all this, you know, cross stuff going on besides, you know, Facebook Live at the same time. I think radio is basically becoming part of social media in a sort of live broadcast sense. Yeah. It's interesting. I heard an interview just yesterday, actually, with a guy, an English guy who's a comedian. He does um, has a very successful podcast. And uh, they were talking about podcasting, and he said, look, the, the, the thing is, I don't have to wait for the BBC to commission me uh, to make a radio show. I just make it, and if the audience comes, they come. Uh, but we're not pushing product at them. Um, we're pulling an audience to us. So, right, interesting. A twister. Yeah, it's colliding with podcasting and dedicated shows and... Some of it's not, you know, it's like just subscription-based and there's, you know, possibly less ad revenue in some of those um, outlets, which is probably great for the listeners. <laughs> well, it's more targeted now. It's more niche, everything. If, if you talk about podcasting, for instance, I mean, I, I, there was an interesting discussion a couple of years ago with uh, commercials running online. In fact, probably more than a couple of years ago, uh, maybe 10 years ago. And everyone's saying, well, what do we do? How, you know, how, are we gonna, how do we set up rates for things that are going to go online? I mean... And I said, does it got a screen? Yeah. Has it got pictures? Yeah. Do they move? Yeah. Has it got audio? Yeah. That's TV, isn't it? Yeah. Right. It's, it's interesting. I was actually having a great conversation with Matt the other day, and um, he was explaining to me how like some of the rates change based on what type of online media it is. So, for instance, if it's something where it's broadcasted to you and you don't really have a choice of seeing it, that can be one rate. And then if it's another thing where you're going to someone's site or it's a video that's you know designed for someone to actually click on and they actively want to watch it, that's another type of media. So some of that is a little bit more like traditional radio where the viewer doesn't get to watch their YouTube 
you know, video until they first watch the ad. And that's one rate for that type of voiceover work that you might do. But if it's a demonstration video where someone actively clicks on it and plays it, that's a different rate. Yeah, well, that makes sense. That's logical and uh, quite simple, really. Mm-hmm. I like it. Now, back to NAB, what is, uh, what's the, the big talking point out there? What's, um, what's hot and what's not? <laughs> George and I were trying to figure this out <laughs> as we were going over. <laughs> well, I, I spent most of the time today in, in the actual in North Hall, which is really the radio hall, which happens to be basically where um, uh, Robert and Source Elements is located. And, um, you know, it looks pretty familiar to years past. Um, you're seeing more and more uh, video encroaching, as we were talking about. You're seeing more and more video production platforms being brought to radio. I think I've heard the term visual radio mm-hmm. being thrown around um, mm-hmm. as, as a thing. So that's definitely being pushed more and more and more. Um, in terms of big companies like Arrakis and Wheatstone and these companies that make radio broadcast-specific stuff, it all looks pretty pretty familiar. I mean, you know, same, it yeah. hasn't. They're they're innovating here and there, but incrementally. There's not. They don't make big, sweeping changes. It seems like in radio, once they find tools that work for them, it's not a whole lot new that they can do with that format. But um, I saw the the Wheatstone Vorsis M1 mic preamp, which I've installed actually quite a few times, and. What's cool about it is it's a, it's a full channel strip that has digital control. So it looks like a traditional channel strip with a bunch of knobs on it. But on the inside, it's completely digitally controlled. So the knobs are just what we call rotary encoders. Right. You know, They don't actually physically control any pots. The advantage of it being that um, you can lock out the whole front panel. You can hold down the local button, turn off local control, and now every knob on the front is dead. Doesn't right and no bumping into knobs and messing stuff up. Yeah, and that can, that's compelling to me because I've set those up for voice actors, and I can tell them, look, hold down the local button until the light goes off, and the knobs are now dead, and you don't have to worry about the kids or yourself or anybody screwing up the knobs, and all the settings are stored in a recall. The only real downside of it is that being in the radio world, the software that controls it is still only compatible in Windows. I, I think it's because it uses ActiveX or some yeah. kind of thing that's Windows only for... Who knows, it uses a GPI and a, like actual contact closures. Yeah, and it's a, it, has a, it has an IP address. Okay. Yeah, it has an that's IP not address. That, so it's not that old school. It has a web browser of some kind, you'd think. It would, you'd think they'd have a way to do if it. If it has a web browser, it's got to be cross... I guess you know. it's not a web browser, actually. That's got to be the next thing, you know, and making it a web browser-controlled device. Because then... That's so compelling for me. I can remotely control these things and set them up for people remotely. But the point of this was is that that thing, the technology behind a hardware preamp that sort of uh, you know has all of its built-in tools and that, that's it's a fixed unit, has just been so incredibly eclipsed by Universal Audio's Apollo system with all these abilities to bring in any virtual processing you could possibly imagine, and then having a guy like me program it all for you from afar while listening on Source Connect and remote accessing your screen and creating presets that things like the voices now for me, just there's no need for it. Mm-hmm. Just isn't any need for it. So Ward Beck is a Canadian company. They make, back in the day they made big boards and now they're sort of getting more into the component type systems and one of the things they had was a uh, an AES mic preamp. 
Mm-hmm. So it's essentially your analog mic preamp with a converter built into it and outputs to AES and completely remote control. As the Voice does as well. Yeah, very, si- very similar. AES. Right, very similar product. And so, in a way, good because prior to that, all the digital microphones had all your conversion built into it. So here's like sort of preamp converter without being an audio interface. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is what that was. I, I thought that was neat, you know? Yeah. I don't know that it's like, oh my gosh, that's going to change the way I wire everything. Um, right. Is that like no, a slate? Slate, okay. the Slate stuff? Oh, like Slate? Uh, the... so, well, Slate has the virtual mic technology, so uh, similar to what UA has with their preamps, and I think I think Slate also virtualizes mic preamps. But there, Slate's doing it in the computer's uh, sort of CPU, whereas UA does it built in on their dedicated DSP chips that are on the UA devices. Yeah. Um, and, and then as far as who makes better code and better emulations, um, generally UA is pretty well respected these days for their quality of their emulations. It's, uh, a lot of music engineers are really digging the stuff. Plus and, UA goes the extra mile and licenses the likeness, branding, and exact sound signatures of these products. So when you get a Manly Vox box, it's clearly licensed from Manly Company. And well, but Waves does the same thing with their SSL channel. It's licensed from... Waves does, yeah. I yeah. guess I was just thinking of Slate. I think Slate tends to go with the more... This is yeah. a U87-like mic without saying it's a U87. U87. And, and Antelope does the same thing, I think. They're not... You know, they have... They're FPGA tech, so it's the Field Programmable Array or whatever that stands for. Oh, man. Talk about going down a rabbit hole. Do you underst- what do you understand about FPGA versus DSP? An FPGA is much more flexible because it can be changed in the field. But what, in essence, is FPGA, since we brought that topic it's a, up? It's a Field Programmable DSP chip. So it can change itself. It can be reprogrammed and, re, in a sense, rewired um, and that makes it more flexible than a proper, just a standard DSP chip. They can come up with a completely different architecture, and this thing, you know, think of it like the Terminator that could just, the blob Terminator, and change itself however it wanted, compared mm-hmm. to the original Terminator that was pretty much this mechanical thing, and it only ever did that form. But is it is it is the audio flowing through the FPGA chip in a digital form, or is it actually an analog chip? Oh, it's digital. It's, it's all digital. Of course, yeah. Uh, okay, okay. But but and I'm probably speaking out of turn here, but as far as I know, an FPGA, it could probably do floating point, and then you could probably turn around and make it a fixed point processor mm. just by reprogramming the way it is wired up or you know configured. And I'm not sure. You know, like it tends to be the most native processing. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the UA stuff is is a floating point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for the most part, the floating point, fixed point issues sailed, and most people are, agree that floating point is better. Mm-hmm. But, um, hmm. Yeah, I know that's what Antelope released. You, you notice how silent um, everything has gone from our end? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just appropriately listening so. to the chat. <laughs> <laughs> I think Roy's got his slippers on already, a, and he's put the cat I out. Put everyone to sleep. <laughs> I mean, honestly, guys. I mean, I, speaking for myself, I've been to so many shows over the last few years. Nam, NAB, Nam, NAB, AES, and here and there, and you just start seeing. You do really start seeing same a stuff. lot of new things. I mean, a lot of the same things, just being refined. And so, so yeah. far, and I have to say, I haven't seen a huge amount of the show yet. There's still two whole halls I haven't seen. But in terms of what we care about in the audio world, there hasn't been any real groundbreaking tools that I've seen. No. 
I, I, I think in general, one thing that seems to be happening industry-wide, and I think it's even radio as well as, uh, and the really big splash seems to be with these big TV productions, is the concepts and systems that are set up to do complete remote productions. So imagine doing like a sporting event um, broadcast, and instead of bringing in three semi-trucks with equipment and people and getting all these cameras set up, now they're able to come in with a much lighter setup with sort of remote-controlled cameras and uh, a skeleton crew that just sets up all the cameras and the microphones. And maybe they have one or two people with handheld cameras running around, but the whole show is produced remotely. So instead of having the switching of the video and the guy mixing it in the truck and all that, that is all done half a world away. And um, so this makes it way quicker. They can set up in one production and then... And then this crew that's working on it remotely can shut down and an hour later work on a whole nother production. So this saves them on, you know, labor costs and flexibility of being able to do many more shows with, I guess, less equipment. Um, yeah, today we're doing the Olympics in Seoul and then we're doing... An hour later, the, the golf PGA. A, the yeah. golf PGA and we're doing right. it all from our one studio here you know, in it's, Atlanta. It's like, it's like drone, it's like, you know, dropping bombs with drones except now we're uh, controlling cameras and mixing the show. All with remote guys, you know, yeah. doing the whole production. And the same thing applies for radio. Well, that stuff's happening here in Australia at the moment too. I'm doing some work for a company at the moment called NEP, who are a big sports broadcaster, <clears throat> um, doing mixing packages for the Commonwealth Games that are on at the moment. And they also have a contract with Telstra, who are the major sponsors of our rugby league competition here in Australia. And on a weekend, um, NEP are charged with um, live streaming all uh, of the NRL games. So on a Sunday, they may be... Uh, live streaming four games and they're using technology that Robert's talking about there now to do that pretty much just remote cameras and sound and um, and doing it all from their um, facilities in in uh, Alexandria. I heard something yesterday which I, I wish I could remember the name of this I was talking to a friend of mine who's um been studying in, in uh, he lives in LA and he's been studying, he's an actor, um, motion capture but he, we were talking about something else and it's basically um it must be some kind of device you wear on your head, but it will allow you to be part of any um, sporting event or any theatre event or music event, whatever. Um, you can actually go to a sports stadium, have a full capacity sports stadium, all wearing these helmets, and instead of watching soccer on the pitch, uh, they're watching gridiron or whatever happens to be pumped in there. And it's actually uh. like really being there. This is augmented reality, I believe. Oh, it's what yeah. you're describing. Yeah, it is quite bizarre. And they're, they're, they're so close to it. They're saying within five to ten years, which probably means about two, because uh, someone will realize how much money can be made out of it and uh, the thing will speed Motivator. up. Motivator. Yeah, but you can, you can also, like w with a movie, it's basically projected into your room. So you can get involved in a, in a drama and just walk, like if, you know, there's a scene going on with someone in a car, you can walk over and look in the car. Oh, wow. wow. That's going to be just, an, oh man, it's going to be amazing. Holodeck yeah. type stuff. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. From it's, Star Trek. Yeah, it's kind of like one step up from a hologram. But that is really freaky. Mm. Oh, man. It is, I mean, if, if they're doing that with 3D and in a moving picture, I mean, there, there's so many cool things they've done with, with VR. Um, I did some spots, so now... You know, you have this old roller coaster, right? And you want to give a new experience. So they give the people VR glasses 
and now, and the VR glasses are tracked by GPSs where the roller coaster goes. So now you're going up and down, but what you see is you're in a swamp or you're in a plane. <laughs> you like like the roller coaster is your physical motion, but the VR is switching your entire environment, Holy and it's cow. following you by GPS. And now you're like. This whole roller coaster is redefined in a way. They can take a 10, 20 year old steel roller coaster that everybody's ridden, it's no longer cool and new, and make it look like you're in a totally different environment. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, and then, man. and when you fall off, you can actually have a virtual parachute. <laughs> you can virtually die. You can yeah. you can feel like you're okay when you're not. Although if you were wearing your voiceover suit that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, you'd be all padded and ready. You know, you could just take the fall. Yeah, I see? forgot about suit. the voiceover suit. <laughs> wear your voiceover suit. That should be at NAB. I reckon for next year we should build the voiceover suit. <laughs> Get onto our Alex. Hey guys, a quick question uh, to change the subject. I saw that there's actually a dedicated podcast hall this year. Have you had a stick your head in the door of there yet? They have an impressive podcast studio space that they've created. Um, but the podcast hall is something that's on my list to check out on uh, t- tomorrow afternoon. So I haven't. It's, it's small. It's a. It's not a. It's not like they've mad. You know, a massive space. I think it has about fifteen vendors or something like that. So it's still to them nowhere near. It's a big thing, though. It's a big thing. A lot clearly. of people have come up and just just at our booth and like, you know, I do podcasts. What do you have for me? What do they mm-hmm. offer in a pod, what What are they offering that's, that we don't already have for podcasting? I think podcasting the market is mainly similar tools to what we as you know voiceovers and and engineers on the recording side use, but much more simplified and um, geared towards interview type setups. Essentially, it's sort of the happy intersection or the median between gear made for home music production. Yeah, you know, really inexpensive, definitely prosumer area, and and but also between that and radio, because mm-hmm. I was at Arrakis today and Wheatstone too, and saw some really nice small on-air consoles that you know were about eleven hundred bucks for an wow. on-air console, and that's actually inexpensive. Um, mm-hmm. And that's clearly being built for podcaster in mind because it's a different budget, you know, right. generally. But the beauty of those kinds of boards are they are built for heavy use. But not only that, they're super, super simplified. They don't have aux end knobs and EQs and gain trims. Every function that is necessary to set up is done with dip switches and internal knobs. And Yeah, the, twi- the, the mix minus is inherent to the routing of the board. You don't have to... Set right. your Mackie mixer up, like turn that knob up, but don't ever turn that knob up because it's going to echo. It's like yes. there is no other knob to screw that up. It makes me want to start for people that do want, you know, a little bit more complex setup beyond what like an Apollo would give them. For people that want a physical control surface, it makes me want to start putting in boards like these because didn't, they're didn't not going to Didn't Joe Sip use a uh, radio board in his studio? Oh, like, he did. But he he was set up like a, an on-air studio. He specifically wanted to feel and operate like an on-air studio. And he was using a Numix digital console from a company called Logitech, uh-huh. not to be confused with Logitech. I think it is the same Bluetooth company, headphone. but a different... No, it's L-O-G-I-T-E-K. It's a, it's it is a different, different company. Yeah, yeah. Their logos almost look the same. I, I know think. it's weird, but um, he well, he was using an on-air board, but that was a twenty-something thousand dollar digital board <laughs> in its day. Right. Now you can get a thousand dollar compact thing that fits on your desktop. And then Yellow Tech, I saw them again. Yeah, yeah, they had a great 
feeling grooved fader that's no fader. Did you? Did oh, you, yeah. That thing is nice. Is so slick. Their Yellow yeah. Tech board, Intelli- mm-hmm. I think it's called the Intellimix. Yeah. It's the slickest, really cool, futuristic looking control surface that's like a sheet of aluminum. And it has displays on it, and then the faders, instead of being physical sliders, it's just a touch surface. With a groove in it. It's like the opposite of what you're used to as a fader. You're used to a fader with the knob popping out, and this one's like a trough. It's wow. hard to describe, but it feels it usable. It feels yeah, it real. Totally. It feels and this, smooth. And then this LED on the side shows you the position of the fader. Right, right. You know, and the beauty of that is there's no moving parts. Right, so there's nothing to wear out. Yeah, I'd love to see the the average audio engineer just sort of polished off a couple of hamburgers using a, a, a touch fader. Well, you've posed a question for me with that fader because if you touch slightly above where the fader is resting currently, does that does mean jump? that you all does it jump or is there some, no. something that's hard to say? It might, might, it might not. With no. my, with you my can de- set it though. I think you can set right. the way it behaves. Well, I, I just bought the Detouch software. Uh-huh. I don't know if you're so you're familiar with the uh, the Raven Slate, right? I am. Yeah. So, you, so you can also buy just your own touch screen, and then this company in Italy makes a software called Detouch, which is basically the software part of the Slate. You just don't have to buy the monitor from them, and in at least Detouch's version, I imagine Slate is the same thing. You can have different fader um, modes, and one of them is jump. The other one is you have to touch that actual fader, and the other one is just relative. So you, right. so, so you, so you like have a mouse, and and that's the beauty of going with these virtual things. Is like now your fader can have three different modes, whereas that motorized fader could only ever do that one thing. Right. And the other thing is the reason why this might be superior to a touchscreen is it can be hard to do a really smooth fader move on glass. If your finger yes, is a little sticky, it's, true. it's hard to move. And and the whatever the material is, it's it sort of a satiny, yeah. satin-finished metal that your finger just slides, glides on beautifully. Yeah. I mean, these it, guys are brilliant. Yeah, wow. So what else was there at NAB that I saw? I mean... I can't think of anything else right now, to be honest. Well, I guess the big question, though, guys, is what's the coffee like? Well, well we're serving coffee over at the Source Elements booth, although oh, it's well, basically okay. a K-cup system. <laughs> so... Because that's going to be the big thing, working coffee. the hours you guys are working. It's, it's you know, get up at 7 and get over to the booth. Hang on a minute. Rebecca's a Kiwi, right? She sure is. Just about every Kiwi I know in Australia is a barista. So she should be making some great coffee. She's extremely serious about her coffee, and she compromises when she comes to this country because none of it's, like, <laughs> up to her standards. Well, yeah, you've um, got to be uh, very selective. I've found that out, and I found a couple of places in, uh, in L.A. and a couple of places in New York that are okay. In fact, there's one blue bottle, blue bottle coffee. No, No. I hear that one's pretty superior. I have a friend. There's there's such a big deal. I have a friend that worked for Blue Body Bottle in the U.S. He moved to Tokyo. They flew him to Tokyo, and he started working at at for Blue Bottle in Tokyo. That's how like, and when when they opened their their coffee shop in Tokyo, it looked like an Apple store. On the morning of the release of an iPad, people were lined up around wow, the block for coffee. For coffee. Wow. Yep. So, don't know what that means. I think that means Japanese people will line up for anything. <laughs> they probably heard the word bottle and thought it had something to do with a whale. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, now there's a couple of good ones. A couple of few Aussies that have opened up cafes in um, in LA. There's one on Lasianica. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I'm trying to think where it, anyway, I can't think of the name of the place, but it's very good. It's very good. A couple of I brought along my AeroPress. Do you know what that is? 
sneaker. Sounds like an iron. No, it's a it's a it's a coffee press for just pressing your own. You know, it's like uh, a French press. press it's like a French press, but it's rapid. It has an air piston. Ah, so you you have a filtered disc at the base, just mm-hmm. a round, very thin filter that locks into the base. You scoop your coffee in, however you want. You pour in your boiling water, and then you do a quick stir, and then you push a plunger like a piston, very like a very large. It looks like a very large syringe. But yep. a very large piston. You press down, and in 20 seconds, you've pressed the coffee through the filter and into the cup. So you get a really nice pressed uh, espresso, and the water doesn't sit in the in the beans for too long. You know, it uh. presses right on through. I'm not a coffee snob. I'm learning to be one enough to actually bring <laughs> my, my girlfriend <laughs> putting her finger to mouth like, yeah, it doesn't work for her. Yeah. But I think it tastes pretty freaking good. It's not acidic. It has a really nice, smooth taste. I, I like it. So you need anyway. to you need to come to Melbourne. I do need to come to Melbourne for many you reasons. Do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the coffee <laughs> is one of them. Coffee for many is others. One of them. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so okay, I, I did also, see one like, other thing at NAB. That, oh, it seems to be like a couple of years ago or last year. It was all about drones. And, yeah. And so now it all seems to all be about robots with 360 cameras on them. Yes. There's a lot of those going around the floor. Yes, there are. Yeah. Lots of ropes. So industrial robotic arms that you see in normally spot welding cars, they're strapping cameras onto these things. So they can do super rapid and very precise camera moves. That's huge this year. Are they fixed, obviously fixed on the ground? These are not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're big. That oh, would be scary. Scary. Don't get in the way because you'll get knocked out if that if, thing hits if you. If they were programmed wrong, it would knock you, cold cock you, knock yeah. you to the ground. Because I remember doing an ad years and years ago, and they used a computerized camera setup. It was it was massive. It was in a big hangar, and it this thing was huge. It was the size of a double decker bus. Sure. And uh, and they, it would just they program in all the movements of the camera. It's basically mm. like that, but way more compact and more portable, and extremely fast. Right. So, so it can do these really crazy camera the, the, moves. The effect is it seems to be what they're doing is they've got the camera running at a really high frame rate, and then they take a series of pictures around the the subject as the camera moves fast and because it's such a high frame rate they can do that matrix effect where it looks like the camera did a rotation around like it stopped and the camera rotated around right now you can do that with one camera and a really fast robotic arm instead of having this array of cameras, cameras all set to like take their picture like yeah in a sequence yeah wow now, there was another thing, talking about uh, 360, I saw, uh, I actually sent an email across, I saw the release this week, um, Rode Microphones up in, in Sydney have bought another company who have obviously been producing 360 microphones, and they've just released their own. Did you get... Is it an Ambisonic I, I, mic? Or yeah. Yeah. Nice. Did, did you see it at all at NAB? I, I haven't... I don't, are they at NAB? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I think they're Rode. pretty well... I think they're there. I saw Neumann's booth, of course, they big booth. <laughs> Of course. Um, other news I did here: uh, Harman has been purchased by Samsung. Ooh, no really? Way. Yes, that's um, and I'm pretty sure that's not misinformation. My understanding is that Harman purchased, or sorry, Samsung purchased Harman. Is you know you, you have brands like AKG and whatnot in that group, and a lot of a lot of pro audio powerhouses now owned by a phone company. What does that <laughs> yes. mean? What does it mean? What's going to happen? Right. I wonder. 
because I, I'm watching, and the only reason I mentioned the road thing was because if you if you watch if watch them over the last few years, you can kind of almost plot where they're going. Mm-hmm. I mean, their, their their plan is to keep everything at a pretty lower cost as yeah. possible. I, I I think roads in there with with Audio Technica in that zone, like they're not like Neumann crazy expensive, but they're certainly not Marshall, and they're right in the extremely usable but sweet price point kind of zone. I did see one thing by Pro- a road is not here. I searched on the uh, NAB guide. Interesting. They're not here. But it doesn't surprise me that much because this is really super broadcast oriented and maybe in the States, road isn't known for broadcast as much. Um, but they'll definitely be at like a NAM, and they'll definitely they be will. at any AE. They're almost always at AES. Right, but road does make shotgun mics and things that are they clearly do. in the broadcast area and you know podcast area too yeah. as well. I think they have a... Is a road that has the mic called the podcaster? They do. Yeah, they yeah. do. Yeah, the broadcaster yeah. and the podcaster. Yeah. It's, uh, that also one more thing because <laughs> we keep thinking of things. Um, Andrew uh, name last name Buzzies. Uh, Andy, Morris. Andy, Andy Morris. Andy yep. Morris. I ran into him. He was hanging out at Source Elements. Yeah, good friend. And he showed me a product from Harman. Uh, interestingly, mm-hmm. that was like a three hundred dollar video caster all in one device that had the microphone. It had a boom arm, and it had a camera mounted on an arm that had a ring light for doing that nice close-up uh, uh, uh. webcast thing. A f- complete package for doing like live streaming, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, that kind of stuff. Everything in one little system. Very wow. ergonomically designed sure. for around 300 US dollars. Because yeah. how, how do you happening. do yours? How do you do yours, George, with the uh, voice of a body shop? <sighs> <laughs> well, we we use a we actually that since you brought that up, we have we're using Wirecast 8.3. It's their newest version of software, and then we have a, a very powerful computer we just had custom built for running the show. We had been using Macs for quite a while, and it was getting to that point where to go to the next level in terms of power, the investment in a, in a Mac was really getting out of control. So for a fraction of the cost of the equivalent Mac Pro or Mac iMac Pro, we had a built uh, i7 Gen 8 6-core PC that does what we needed to do and barely breaks a sweat. And then we're bringing in video on four channels of SDI, 1080p, of different cameras that we have in the studio. Um, One of them is like a Canon Vixia Handycam. We have a new camera we just got to experiment with. It's called a Logitech Brio, and it's Logitech's 4K webcam. So it's USB 3, and it plugs in with a standard USB cable, but it has a USB-C port on it, on the back of it. So it can be USB-C or USB 3, and that camera looks fantastic. Considering it's a $160-something-dollar camera, it's 4K, and it's beautiful. (laughs) It's autofocus, auto... You know everything, and you can crop in on a 1080p show, and it's like having multiple cameras because you can punch in on that 4K image and get a really sharp 1080p picture. So we got one of those to play with. And another thing is now we have this thing called NDI, which means we can bring in video sources from any computer, any smartphone, all over the LAN, over the network, and those become video sources. So it's mind-blowing what we can bring into the show. Um, And then we do chroma key. 
Not very well all the time, but we do chroma key. Yes, I've seen a couple of those. (laughs) It's hard to do. (laughs) It's hard to do, especially in a really small, small studio, which is what we're breaking all the rules of chroma key. Light consistency is so hard. I thought Dan had lost a hand uh, when I saw one the other week. (laughs) (laughs) I I liked when the meters in, in, uh, what's it called? Um, The the meters in the in the DAW disappeared because they were green. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're doing on green, and then anything that's green in the in the in the image yeah. is, is keys out. So like the the background is like showing up and disappearing. Like yeah, yeah. it's you know it, we're not trying to fool anybody that we're in a real environment. We have fun with it, and the latest thing we do is we tell people to show us your booths, and people send in <laughs> pictures of their own studios. Nice. And that becomes yeah. our backdrop. And then, and then you, and then you throw them beads after they show them your boots. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 Um, <laughs> now we also, and, uh, you can, but it's great. It, we we have a lot of fun with that. It lets people participate in the show. It lets their studio be seen. And sometimes, just sometimes, it looks so cool and convincing due to complete luck. I one time we turn on the cameras and I'm sitting in my own studio and I look on the camera and I go. Oh, I actually turned around for a split second. Like, it looked that good. The yeah, lighting yeah. and the depth yeah. of field, everything just looked right. And it looked like I was sitting in a studio, somebody's studio. So when it's right, it really it's looks great. good. Yeah. When yeah. it's not, it looks so bad. <laughs> it's, it's amazing what you can get these days. I mean, like, whole handy cam setups can be handheld, like, gimbals that are computer controlled. And you've got, like, a whole TV station built out of uh, a home-built PC and some software uh, and some... Uh, yeah, I could, like, I could go on. That was a big thing at NEB last year was green screen only looks convincing if the camera's locked down, right? right. You can't yeah. move the camera. <laughs> the the shadows change. And the stuff. background moves. Now the thing is all the cameras have motion sensing systems in them. So when the camera moves around on a jib or whatever, the backdrop shifts and moves in perspective with exactly with the camera. CNN and things are using this stuff now. But yeah, you can have virtual sets that look pretty darn real because they move with the cameras. So that's uh, happening now. That's a big thing. I thought Fox were using it for their virtual news, but uh, oh no, who is that? <laughs> no, that was naked news you were watching, I think. <laughs> I mean, the next thing is that fake news, it's virtual news. <laughs> oh, if it was the Italian news, they used to, remember the time they used to have the topless newsreader? Oh, didn't oh, they have, boy. yeah, naked news? Or, Back in the yeah. 80s? I, I've, that's yeah, right. it, like it was legit. It was bizarre. Was You'd totally be watching legit. the news, and there yeah. would be a woman with topless woman reading the news. Oh, no, it's more <laughs> than that. These days, they you know get it all off. <laughs> Trust me, I subscribe. That's not news. Just because it's on the yeah. internet, it's not news, and that's not news actually. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> that's right. Now you had a we had a question sent. Yeah, to Yeah, listen, Robo. I got a quick question, and I, oh. I have to apologise to whoever sent it to us because I'll have to give out his name next week. But it, it came off the back of our last episode. Uh, uh, Stephen Hawking, I think his name was. Stephen Hawking. <laughs> yes, right. Like, you and guys Robert, are all you, wrong. You were talking about recording at twenty-four bit and noise floors. Um, and this guy, who I will apologise to again for forgetting his name, but we'll get to it next week, has written to us and said, Love the podcast. Listening to engineers is exciting. I run my <laughs> mic through a preamp to the interface and there's no compression or gating. That's how I send my audio to producers. You guys were talking about the difference in recording 16 and 24-bit. The speaker, who was you, Robert, said you can record at 24-bit at minus 48 and have the same resolution as 16-bit often exceeds the noise floor of your preamp. 
Then George said, 24-bit always exceeds the noise floor of your mic pre. I'm not sure I understand correctly. I record it 2448, and if the audio is going to video or they haven't specified, I send it 2448. I guess my question is noise floor and how it applies to the bit rate. Thanks, love the show. Whew. Okay. Well, was, um, first of all, was what I said correct? Yes, like, like, yes, like the 24-bit noise floor is... What's the dynamic range of 24-bit audio? 144 decibels. 140 decibels. Yeah. 144 decibels. And the lowest self-noise of a preamp I've maybe ever seen on a spec was 120-something? Yeah, I mean, right. and I, I think that other people post maybe better than that, and I think you have to really start to question their measuring equipment or yeah. their honesty. It's or, all theoretical because it's all limited by the environment you're in anyway. And and, mm. and how, how they're weighting A-weighted and C-weighted and how they're weighting the measurements, but basically... 24-bit audio has a dynamic range that exceeds the best analog circuits out there. So you're at that point, your converter has sort of gone away or is extremely transparent to the whole process. Um, so the first thing I'd say is that um, listening to audio engineers is not exciting. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'd agree with that. <laughs> Although if they're this far in the show, maybe they disagree, but you know. Right. <laughs> maybe. That's right. Um, how can I explain this? Uh, so basically... Uh, 90 or 16 bit has a 96 decibel range, and that's because essentially, um, I, I think it's exactly a rule of thumb you've got six decibels per bit. So in 16 bit, you've got a 96 decibel range, in 24 bit, you've got a 144 decibel range. You subtract the two, and you can see that you've got a 48 decibel difference. So at minus 48, or that 48 decibel difference, you're basically um, you still have 100 decibels left in 24-bit, and so you have the same resolution as a 16-bit recording. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're putting such a low-level signal into a 24-bit converter that when you gain that up, you're not going to gain up a whole crapload of noise because your analog circuit, you're going to really expose the, the noise floor of your analog circuit by recording at such a low level. So I would never encourage anybody to just recording with such a low level because you can get away with it because you're now showing the sort of the weaker side of your analog input. But what it does mean is that you don't have to sit there in a 24-bit recording and really worry about getting so close to the top because you've got such such a huge dynamic range that if you're even recording at, say, minus 20... Peaks at minus 20. Peaks at minus 20, right? Not even average, peaks at minus 20. You're still got plenty of resolution that if you gain that up, you're going to have a recording that's within that 16-bit quality range. Yeah, noise comes from a lot of places in a studio, right? It comes from the environment. Yep. That's probably the most obvious in a home studio. Um, it comes from bad cables. It comes from a microphone that's not a very, very right. low-noise mic. Induced noise from electric, electrical lights and things it like does, that. It so does, like, you have acoustic, You have environmental noise, you have electric noise, and then you also have sort of digital noise, because converters create noise in what's called the quantizing error. Hmm. So if you had only a 4-bit converter, it creates noise by having such a low resolution. Yeah. Um, the quantizing noise of a 24-bit recording is way down there at the last couple, four, you know, 8 bits or whatever. That's where the converter noise really starts to show up. And this is why, if you record on a six in sixteen bit digitally, but only record with peaks at say minus twenty, 
You get an eight-bit yeah, or you get like I don't know what it is exactly, but you're it's basically like you're recording at a lower bit. You're, it's like you might as well recording at twelve bits or something correct, lower. Right. And then that quantization noise you're talking about is after exposed. normalizing it comes up. So Precisely. that's one kind of noise that becomes exposed with sixteen bit or produced, I guess, with sixteen bit if proper normal proper right. recording levels Be- aren't aren't because uh, it's it's kind of fake gain. If if you have a low gain. level. And you add gain to it, you're not getting those bits back. You're just basically moving the bits that you have up to the top and filling it at the bottom with, if you're lucky, noise. dither. Dither. Which noise. is purposeful noise. Right. So that you don't hear the weird zigzaggy whatever sounds of the converter, but you hear just yeah. smooth noise that your brain sort of tunes out more right. easily. Right. So so with twenty four bit, that's still happening, but it's happening at such so, a low, low, low level that even after normalizing at twenty dB or whatever that is still basically inaudible. That quantization noise is there, but it's masked below right. the noise floor of your studio, your mic preamp, your mic, and everything else that's making noise. It's still the lower contributor to the overall pile of noise. Exactly. Right. And my understanding with white noise, or anything that's a broadband noise, pink or white noise, noise doesn't pile on top of each other as much as the quieter noises are masked by the loudest noise. Sure. I talked to somebody about this a while ago, and it kind of blew my mind. I figured if you have two noises of the equal volume, and you add the, and you play them together at the same time, you'd get six dB more, like twice the noise. It's not how it works. The the one white noise masks the Could lower mask white the noise. Other, yeah. It's kind of right. geeky stuff, but it's fascinating. No, so, like sound doesn't always pile up linearly in volume. Yeah, but and white noise like, doesn't work that way. It'd be like the phasing issue. I would have thought. Is that correct when you put two noises Darren, do you together? Know, do you know, Robert, is that what you th- is that sound right? What I'm explaining in terms of noise masking? He's yeah, asleep. I think so. The, <laughs> the louder <laughs> noise masks the quieter noise. I was actually I wanted I actually, to get him into the conversation. Had my, well, I actually had my mic mic muted because I was sneezing. But no, that, I think you nailed it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds right. I learned this a little while ago. So, bottom line is the noisiest thing that makes the most noise probably your environment, but then maybe your mic preamp or your mic. It trumps everything else. In, so, in 24-bit, it's especially, more noise than your digital system, for yeah, sure. Yeah. it's yeah. twenty. So so whatever noise issues you're having from quantization or anything else, it's just not... It's going to be masked by your own environment and your other noises. So I don't know if this is answering the question in the way he was looking, but... Uh, well, if, if we go back to the question, I think he was asking what, how the bit rate... Uh, affects, affects the noise, the noise floor. floor. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I think we did with, answer um, that kind of... I think you've done it. And there's two noise floors, I guess, to talk about. So you have your digital noise floor, and 24-bit has a noise floor just like 16-bit, but the 24-bit noise floor is 140 decibels down compared to the 16-bit noise floor, which is it's only 96. 100 decibels down, yeah. roughly. So that's one noise floor. And then the second one is um, your analog noise floor, which... Um, in 16-bit, your analog noise floor and your digital noise floor are almost at the same place, whereas in 24-bit, your analog noise floor is most definitely above your digital noise floor. And the point to the whole conversation, going back to the first uh, podcast we did when we were talking about this, was that with 24-bit, you just don't have to risk recording too hot and clipping something, and you've got plenty of room to record at a very low level. And if you had a theoretically perfectly silent mic preamp that if there was no other noise in the system except for your digital noise, then you could record in a 24-bit system at minus 48 and have the exact same recording 
as recording full blast into a 16-bit system. It's all theoretical, but that's the point. With, with a perfect mic preamp and no noise, you could do that. But the point is, is that you've got still... My, minus 48 is a ridiculously low level to record at. No one would do that. It's off yeah. the meter. Most yeah. meters don't even... I mean, what they might have start, start at minus 48, maybe minus Maybe. Well, I'm looking 30. at my Doros here. They only go down to minus 33, 38. Right. So, so, so you're recording off the meter, and theoretically you could get the same resolution, but the point is you could record very low in your meter, pump it up with some of that fake gain, and you're not still, you're still going to be well within a respectable level, and mm-hmm. you don't have to risk clipping just because you're trying to save mm-hmm. yourself a little bit of a noise floor. Well, speaking of noise and noise floor... How quiet is the studio? <laughs> studio is great here. I have to Sounds take the awesome. headphones off. Yeah. Hey, I'm not sure what I hear. It's pretty much quiet. gone. Yeah, no, I, I don't can hear, someone. hear anything. Who, Matt's sitting out there listening. I, I think this is. I think Matt should walk in here real quick so he can. I think so. Yeah, introduce Matt, Matt will to you us. Come in here. Come on, Matt. Yeah. Talking of noise, though, just as a disclaimer, um, if you are working in a home studio, it's probably best you don't record <laughs> at low levels because there's probably going to be quite a bit of ambient noise. I think the lesson that voiceover people who are recording at home, though, could possibly take, and correct me if I'm wrong here, George and Robert. You're wrong. Um, is that if, if you were going to do, if you knew you were going to be recording a session of various scripts, perhaps for a, a radio station or something like that, and there was going to be a range of projection of your voice that you could, if you were recording it at 48, uh, sorry, if you're recording it at 24-bit, you could probably just drop your your gain a little to make sure that, you know, it wasn't going to clip and you weren't have to be jumping backwards and forwards. Always yeah. better. If, if you have a choice between recording too low or recording too hot, you're always better off recording too low. Yeah. You can save that. You can, you, you might not have much noise when you gain it up. You have things like RX noise and things that you might be able to take the noise out. But once you clip it, your options are way less. I mean, like, to fix clipping, there's some plugins that claim to do it. I've had to resort to drawing waveforms and going, I think it would have gone yeah. here and yeah, trying to restore the curves. That, yeah. But there, it's, it's gone. It's flattened out. And so there's no saving a clip compared to saving something that's recorded low. So the point is, if you've got something that you're not sure how loud it's going to get, you can be conservative in the levels, go low. If you've got 24-bit of space, use it. So Matt, Matt stepped in here. I'd like to know from Matt, what do you think or what do you understand is the noise floor of your rooms? Have you, have you figured that out? I have not. Yeah. I don't, uh, can't say that I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, um, what kind of investment have you had to make to get the noise floor down to an acceptable level? Like when you bought this, you moved into a space that was already here, right? Yeah, the the walls were doors, windows, walls were here. We um, came in and gave it a facelift as far as just kind of getting it up to date. Um, it was uh, originally done in 1985, and it and it showed it. Um, there was wallpaper and you know ugly carpet. And, yeah. Uh, so we uh, we but it was built it to a pretty high. Yeah, I mean it's all it's all double walled. There's all there's a two inch air gap. Um, I got the specs. I've got the the yeah. out sheet from the landlord provided that for me. And yeah, and um, the floor is not floating by any means. Mm-hmm. But but, um, but there's not really uh, we're not in an industrial area. There's no eighteen wheelers coming by. It's not. Yeah. There's not really any outside sound that that it's it's a problem. Cool. Do you have a Do you have the talking car in the basement? <laughs> I don't. I don't. Okay, cool. That's good. Um, just wondering, though, seriously, the studio, was that built for um, post-production or was it built for music originally? 
It was built for post-production. Um, these these booths are all very large um, size because uh, at the time this was built, back when they used to have multiple talent in a radio spot, um, if you had four talent in a spot, you would have four talent in the booth. And uh, these booths were designed uh, with that in mind. And, and, and that makes some great rooms for ADR. Yeah, yeah, this room has been fantastic for ADR. The old place we had, it was a little boxy, a little tight, and um, you know, we've built all these gobos, so we can kind of create some different spaces. This room sure. is quite quite yeah. large. For, for, for everyone out there, the nightmare with ADR is they come in with a movie, <clears throat> and the scene is outside, and you have to replace this dialogue that's shot outside, and the person's in a room. And how do you make something sound like it's not in a room when it's in a room? And you do that by having, A, a room that's big enough but still dead so that the room starts to go away as much as possible. And a room like this can do that. Pretty effectively. Yeah. Yeah, we've had good luck so, in here. I've been real happy with this. So Matt, what, what's, your, what's the main work you do in there? I would say main work is commercial. Um, we provide a lot of voiceover. We cut a lot of spots. Um, we have... We work with a lot of agencies doing production from from concept to finish. Um, we have a handful of clients that are video houses that don't have a, a internal audio house, so we'll we'll often cut the VO, find some music selects for them. They'll kind of rough it together, send it back to us. We'll clean up their music edits and then sound design it and give it a mix and send it back. Um, we do. We've been getting a lot more ADR lately. Just kind of it's been kind of feeding on itself. We we uh, probably doing. Four or five sessions, uh, ADR sessions a month now, just because uh, different actors are in Vegas for whatever reason. Right, those of, are all those are all mainly remote ADR sessions, or yeah, no, they're all remote. Yeah, yeah. typically we're hooking up with the Sony or, or somewhere in, in LA, New York. Uh, just depends. Location, location. London. We did one with them with uh, we were with Hong Kong one time. Mike Tyson was doing a was doing a ADR with uh, in China. So it was that was a fun one. Um, is it with China? Did 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 you do Source Connect with with China, <laughs> or was that how was that done? Uh, Great Firewall of China. It, it, it didn't it didn't work out so well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Mike was getting very impatient, and I just said, "All right, let's just do this. We're just gonna go." So I yeah. I, I kind of skyped them and just held my phone up so they could see what was going on. But we just kind of took over because it was it, it just kept. Getting chopped. They'd be there for a second. We'd go start to rolling, and then all of a sudden they were gone. And, Problems, and, yeah. And 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 uh, the I did Chinese firewalls a pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want to keep Mike waiting. Sure. So I was like, might, might just... get your ass kicked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Was, they no, might was... bite chew your chew your ear. I got to ask Matt, what's Mike Tyson like as ADR talent? Then no comment. <laughs> I, I he did an amazing, amazing job. Cat. Yes, it yeah. was absolutely amazing. Professional under threat yeah, of a sure. right jab. I'm sure Matt, being a professional owning a studio, will never ever uh, never tell. Uh, you know, never. Yeah, so, tell about that. Yeah, it, it's funny. Some people, um, some people are just absolutely amazing at it. Um, everybody kind of has their own way. Some people will just. Um, uh, Monica Raymond from uh, Chicago Fire. She 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 would hear the line. She'd close her eyes. And she would just do it spot on every time. Yeah, yeah. She, she'd give me three. She gave me three in a row, and all of them would line up. I mean. And she go, let me hear it. Let me just, let me just hear it. And she would just practice it. It would be, it would be dead on. I was amazed. I did. I had uh, Jeff Daniels and um, like the seasoned Hollywood actors, and they're used to getting their beeps, seeing it, and they like say, let me look at it a few times. And it's like, fuck, I don't need to edit that. It's like it's just there. Like, mm. 
And I've done plenty of ADR where if it's a talent that's not used to the process and they just get actually messed up trying to look at themselves and seek up to themselves. And what actually starts to become a better process if someone's not familiar with the, the workflow is to just play them their previous line. Yeah. If they're seeking up to it and they get that pacing in their head, not looking at picture, and then they just give you three in a row after that. And then you cut it in because so different actors, you know, react to the whole process. But these, you know, veteran Hollywood actors, when they get in the groove and they're looking at picture, it's like maybe some part of the process is sort of automatic. Yeah, I think you're right. I did, um, it was only a couple of weeks ago, I did an ADR session for a TV commercial with a voice actor and a young voice actor at that. And they just couldn't get it in their head of what I wanted from them. It's like, I need you to deliver it the way you delivered it almost exactly, well, pretty much exactly, obviously. Um, but they couldn't, they just couldn't get it in their head. It was, uh, it was like, it was their big chance to, to you know, remake the scene. <laughs> yeah. And we had a, we had a, a seven-year-old girl in here one time for a Disney show and she was amazing. I mean, she just saw it and she, she hit it right away. But yeah, there's some people that just can't, just, just can't, turn can't, that TV off. They can't get yeah. that cadence of the, you know, you know, you're, you go on four and they just don't get that cadence down. They'll jump it early or they'll come in mm, late and then right. you're just, you're constantly sliding and, and, and moving around. You're just That's like, it. you start, you basically have, you know, you can't beat the actor up too much. And then after a certain point, you're just like, all right, you get the closest one. You start time compressing this syllable and stretching yes. that syllable yeah. and, and you, chopping and halfway you, through that syllable. Yeah. And, and you're just looking at the two waveforms in the picture and you just yeah. shoehorn it in there and you make yeah. it work. Yeah. Um, but well, yeah. being in Vegas, I mean, being in Vegas, celebrities do come here. So you get them yeah, we coming get into f- the door. We get a fair amount uh, of people. I mean, oftentimes I'm signing NDAs, so I'm careful not to say too much. Yeah, but, but but yeah, there's. I mean, for whatever reason, uh, they're in Tally. Last year was Monica Raymond was here because of NEB. She was uh, here for something, and then they yeah. were doing the they were doing the season finale of Chicago Fire, and so we cut a cut a couple episodes there. Yeah. But, but yeah, they're just different reasons that they're in town, and 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 so it's fortunate uh, to be in in this town be, because of that. We we get a lot of work uh, just. There's not a whole lot of places in town that that do it, or or at least you know as well as yeah. As, there's as, probably you know lots of music studios. I mean, even like it, what was it like House of Blues put a studio in the Hard Rock Hotel. I won't. Yeah. Play, I don't know if you knew that. Like, yeah, I saw. I've seen it. Yeah, it's amazing. But it's more the, the, music the, studios. Yeah, the Palms yeah. has one too, and you know we we've lost a couple gigs to them. Like uh, it was uh, ADR gig. It was an, it wasn't ADR. It was yeah. um, it was going to be a director's commentary. Okay. They were going to watch the movie. Uh, it was it was Jim Belushi. It was something he was in, and they were going to book it. But they ended up booking it there. But I, I don't know if they've you know it's 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 tough, man. It's a lot going on. Um, I've got a, an engineer that's just absolutely fantastic. He's so fast. Well, I mean, all you guys, it's, 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 you have three, right? Or there? there's three of us, including me. Uh, yeah, yeah, so. great place, man. Great staff. Thank you, thank you. So what's the, what's the population of Vegas? I wouldn't imagine it's huge. It's drunk. Uh, well, <laughs> it's it's drunk. It's, That's the tourists. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> I'm not sure the latest is over two. Um, I think we were up to two point five during the boom, and then when the economy crashed, it fell under two. I think, and I it's been two coming million. back up. Yeah, 
I mean, that I, I, should be obvious to me, but still, it, it's, it's, it's more than I was thinking. Is that too? That's just Vegas, not like suburbs and things. Well, that's, that's just, Henderson, Vegas. Henderson, right? that's, okay. that's Henderson, Vegas. So, so the North, Vegas area, the North Vegas. Yeah, I mean, North Vegas is its own city, but it, yeah. you know, that's that that the metro, numbers. Yeah. It, the valley, you know, it's it's sure. you look around. But and, then, like you know, a hundred thousand people come in for the NAB conference. It's like it's just expanding and contracting, contracting constantly. constantly. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were there for the Osmonds, I think. That's and they just went to NAB, you know. <laughs> <laughs> to fill in that day between gigs, but uh, you know, I'm just curious because it, it, having a having a big studio like that in a in a city of a population of you know somewhere around two million, I wouldn't imagine there'd be a huge amount of local work being done, like as in high end commercials, for instance. Yeah, I mean, I've got clients span the country. I've got I've got clients all over. We do stuff for you know people in LA. We do stuff. It just kind of depends. Sure. They're all just connections we've made over the years, and and and. The, the work kind of comes from all over. Um, we have a fair amount of local work, but honestly, most of it is, most of it's out of market. And, yeah. uh, you know, and also being, you know, not, not only celebrities, but just being in Vegas, there's a lot of voice talent in town and and some don't like to, to you know, lug a portable gear with them and set up right. a pillow fort in the hotel room. They just want to come here and do an ISDN session and, and whatnot. So we get a lot of just people coming through town that need a booth for, for a minute. And we've got... Uh, we've got a self-serve booth just set up for that where they can go in, the preamps, ah. the preamps in the booth for them, and they just, well, if they want Source Connect or ISDN, we hook them up, and then they can set their levels and just kind of kind of go. So, yeah. Cool. So it just kind of... And that's, that's of course, with a, a 41.6 in there, I would imagine? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that, there's a 103 in that room, but, I mean, we've got a few 87s, a few 416s. Uh, I've got a 147. Um, and you get that freaking sweet U87. It's beautiful. He got the oh, Iridium uh, uh, limited edition. Yeah, you you got to have that. Matt, have you got one, Matt? Have you, did you buy I one? I did. I did get one. Yeah. It's like, I, I forget <laughs> wow. what it is. I think it's like a number 147 or 500 or, or something like that. And it came with little black gloves. And it's. Uh, it's Vegas, man. It's, yeah, you yeah. got to have it's, it's the bling, bling. Mic in, Ve- in a yeah. studio in Vegas. No, I saw even, even the shock <laughs> mount is chromed out. Like, not just the mic. It's like the thing, like, you walk in, it's like, oh. As I, as I said on George's post when he put the uh, picture up of that, uh, the U87, um, I think if you had one, you spend a lot of time polishing and probably the mic as well. <laughs> Talk about a mic you don't touch. That is definitely one of them. <laughs> thanks, man. Thanks for letting yeah, us really, do this. Really thanks for letting us crash on you, dude. NAB floors, like, you know, by all means, oh, go, man. come use the space. So, so sweet, That's cool. Dude. Thank you, man. So you Adrenaline is the name of the studio. Adrenaline Studios... Las Beautiful. Mm-hmm. We're about four miles west of the Strip, so pretty. pretty oh, it's like 10, 10 minutes. 15. It was ten minutes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like three point nine miles west of just off Flamingo, yeah. so it's 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 fairly close, pretty centrally located. So it's about seven point three kilometers for our Australian listeners. Yep. <laughs> 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 Got to have those translations. That's it. Well, guys, this has been awesome. Yeah, it it has. It's been great. And that was a really weird ending. Do you think that's <laughs> is this over? Is that it? I think we should end with 10 seconds of room tone. Okay, let's have a listen. <laughs> let's, let's go again. Here we go. Here you go. Ready? At minus 48. Very nice. Very Who did that? <laughs> Was Very Andrew? nice indeed. Yes. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. Who did that? <laughs> it was not me. Okay, well, that's uh, our show from Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. As Elvis would say. Just don't do the peanut butter rolls before bed, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Wipe the tear, baby, dear, from your eye Though it's hard to part, I know I'll be tickled to death to go Don't cry, don't sigh There's a silver lining in the sky Bonsoir, old thing, cheerio, chin, chin, na, poo, toodaloo, goodbye. The Pro Audio Suite does not recommend that you record at minus 48, even if you are recording at 24-bit. Your recordings will sound completely horrible, and we take no responsibility for delivering really bad audio to your clients. Written and authorized by Robert George, Robbo, and Andrew.